from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, reptiles and batteries. In addition, we'll be joined by Ms. Nina Burley, who will discuss Napoleon's scientists. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Rockatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. I'm Frank Lee. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? I'm kind of hungry this time. No, I'm only human. <laughs> That's uh, your greatest weakness and your greatest strength. <laughs> so here's another animal fact of the week. You're starting to enjoy the animal facts. They came back so suddenly. This is actually a new finding. So. Oh, okay. Turns out now we have conclusive evidence that the temperature at which reptile is conceived determines its eventual sex. So, you know, in mammals and birds, sex is actually determined by genotype from the sperm that it's receiving. Whereas now, they found that for a lot of eggs, when reptiles bear them, the sex is undetermined. And it turns out that there's a higher prevalence of females at so-called higher or lower temperatures, and then more population males when the eggs are at intermediate temperatures. So are they suggesting a selective reason for this? There must be some sort of evolutionary advantage to this. Not clear yet what that might be, but apparently there's a very strong correlation between temperature and the eventual gender of the offspring. Males just uh, like things to be lukewarm. So maybe your mom was lukewarm when she was having you, huh? She hasn't been since. <laughs> At least not in the phone calls I get every day. <laughs> At least she's not cold, right? <laughs> That's one thing Korean mothers are not. <laughs> This was pretty fascinating stuff. It was actually carried out in Australia. A group of researchers led by Rick Shine and his student Daniel Warner carried out this work, and it was published in a recent edition of Nature. Well, uh, if you need to heat up those eggs, you might want to charge up your batteries. Scrambled eggs or poaching them? <laughs> I'm not really sure how you like your eggs. Sunny side I, up. But yeah. soy sauce have interesting taste, you know. Especially when it comes to laptop batteries. Yeah. Well, you know, they keep a lot warm. <laughs> not sure if that's a good thing or not. <laughs> well, not if you want to have kids that have only two arms. <laughs> and two eyes. Uh, researchers are trying to extend the life of batteries, especially the lithium-ion batteries. Yes. And most of the lithium-ion batteries that are used, tiny uh, whiskers of carbon as charge-carrying particles on the anode. Right. The researchers been trying to use silicon because they can hold more charges. Okay. But there's been sort of a technical problem in terms of mounting this to the material. So it doesn't adhere very well. Right. But now new research that's been done by Yi Tsui, a material scientist at Stanford, has managed to do this by using a novel process in which they deposit the silicon fibers through various manipulations, are able then to get this to adhere very closely and hold a lot of charge. So with this new setup, does this mitigate the heating problems that they've been having with the batteries? It depends, I guess, on the efficiency of the transfer of the Right, energy. right. I think that is probably the biggest issue with batteries, that they overheat and then right. you know, your laptop will really burn. This is just sort of a proof of concept at present in terms of extending the battery life to extend it almost 10 times, they say. Excellent. Yeah. So, fascinating work published in a recent edition of Nature Nanotechnology. And that's all for our look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Ms. Nina Burley will join us to discuss Napoleon's scientists. So, stay tuned.
Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, over 200 years ago, Napoleon, along with 30,000 soldiers and a group of 151 scholars, invaded the shores of Egypt. The scientists, mathematicians, engineers, and artists that accompanied him on this journey conducted groundbreaking research, ultimately founding the science of Egyptology and archaeology. Their story is chronicled in the new book, Mirage, Napoleon's Scientists and the Unveiling of Egypt. The author, Ms. Nina Burley, is a University of Chicago graduate and the author of several critically acclaimed books, including The Stranger and the Statesman and The Making of America's Greatest Museum. As a journalist, her work has appeared in numerous publications such as Time, The Washington Post, and The New York Times and The New York Magazine, among others. Ms. Burley, thank you very much for joining us today on The Grok Science Show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, well, certainly a pleasure. I think uh, really a very fascinating book. Napoleon's occupation of Egypt has widely been regarded as a very ill-fated military blunder. Why did he decide to go to Egypt? Well, there were two reasons. One was that they, the French were in wars with Europeans all over the continent, and they, he pacified many areas of Europe, but he could not defeat the main foe, which was England. England had the superior navy, and uh, they were a serious foe. They were not happy that the French had executed their king. And so Napoleon and the French directory decided, well, let's go to the Orient, and maybe we can kick the British out of India, which was sort of the prized colonial possession in Asia at the, at the time. And Egypt also was believed to be in play, that the Ottoman Empire was beginning to crumble. The European powers were, of course, fighting wars over colonies all over the place. And the French thought, let's take Egypt. Let's just go there. And it was a completely brazen move. Uh, they were already distracted by their civil services were completely in disarray. Paris smelled worse than it had since the Middle Ages. In post-revolutionary France was really in tatters. So to send 50,000 men and their greatest military hero to Egypt would not seem like the wisest thing to do. And yet they did it. The directory was this weak government, and they, Napoleon was a rising star. He was, he was actually like, like a rock star. He was 28 years old and just completely hero-worshipped in France. And I think that they felt the leaders were weak men, and they felt, let's send him really far away for a while. And he was happy to go because he had all these fantasies about the Orient and about taking the Orient as Alexander had, and hence bringing along his savants who were modeled on Alexander's philosophers. And you do mention the savants in the book is about these people. Why did all these learned scholars decide to go on this mission? Mainly because of Napoleon's reputation. He, he was a hero, and they were happy to go with him. France was a leader in the sciences, even though Paris was in disarray. The sciences were galloping along. They had invented the metric system. The scientists were, at this period, it was a very radical period, just post-revolution. They had thrown their clerics out. They had thrown the Catholic Church out of France. And scientists, for a time, were kind of the secular, spiritual heroes, if that makes sense, of this nation. And uh, they felt that they were doing something, for, they were bringing knowledge home for the glory of France. So it was kind of a combination of the revolutionary zeal and a real Enlightenment era, very late Enlightenment era desire to catalog and classify the world. And even though the invasion didn't go well, these uh, findings that all these savants had were uh, truly remarkable in a Yes, they were indeed. I mean, they found, the, their main find was the Rosetta Stone. 
which unlocked the hieroglyphic script and then basically revealed the ancient Egyptian civilization to modernity. The hieroglyphic script had not been understood for at least 1,500 years. Even the ancient Romans and Greeks didn't know what it was. The medieval Arabs thought, and so did the Renaissance Europeans, thought that the hieroglyphic picture writing really represented magical spells, and that if only you had access to the knowledge, you could use it to turn lead into gold, bring the dead back to life, and so on. They thought these ancient Egyptians had access to that kind of magical knowledge. Our word alchemy actually comes from the Arabic word alcheme, which means things Egyptian. So they found the Rosetta Stone. In addition to that, they were the first people to investigate the tombs and the pyramids and the the, uh, the colossal structures along the Nile, and they investigated them and looked at them in a modern way. That is, they measured, they drew scale drawings of what they saw. They didn't excavate because Napoleon's fleet with all of the equipment for the scientists was blown up a month after they arrived in Egypt, and they were really troubled. They didn't have a lot of resources. They didn't have the time or the machinery to excavate, but they knew as they went up the Nile and and saw the remnants of Karnak and Thebes that these colossal columns and rooftops of temples, basically, of massive temples, went way down underground, and all they could do was draw what they saw. Uh, And what they brought back, they put into a 24-volume encyclopedia called The Description of Egypt, which is essentially known as the founding tome of archaeology, because they looked at these ancient objects in a way that we, as a modern archaeologist, actually do look at things in situ. And this book really galvanized the public interest in Egypt, almost leading to kind of an Egypt mania in a way, right? Exactly. That's what they call it, Egyptomania. It whetted the appetite of Europeans for all things Egyptian and kind of kicked off a 50-year-long fad, basically the Victorian, what we think of as Victorian style in furniture and in clothing and in architecture is deeply influenced by Egyptian things, ancient Egyptian things. The dresses that women wore with the kind of drape was taken from the um, ancient drawings and friezes. And if you go to, say, the great cemeteries that were built in the 19th century in France, now where they buried Jim Morrison, that place is filled with fake obelisks and tombs that are kind of modeled on the temples and tombs of ancient Egypt. It also so increased the desire of Europeans to see the stuff that it kicked off unwittingly. They kicked off the epic plunder of the Nile that resulted in things like the obelisk in Central Park in New York, the museums of Berlin and London and New York, and the Louvre being filled with sarcophagi and friezes and basically anything that they could haul away, they did. And that stuff is now, of course, at issue. Uh, The Egyptians want it back. They want the Rosetta Stone back as well, which is sitting in the British Museum. The French having, after three years, surrendered to the British in Egypt and having to give up all of the large objects that they had found. The Rosetta Stone now sits in the British Museum in a plastic case or a glass case with tiny little plaque that says given to the British Museum by the King, uh, by King George. 
And of course, there's no mention of the poor little French scientists who found it and carefully cared for it for three years. A lot of the artifacts that were recovered by the French on that early expedition were taken by the British, but that uh, zoologist was able to get a lot of the materials back. The British ended up taking the big stuff, the sarcophagi, a Memnon fist, but the scientists for three years have been, first of all, drawing copious amounts of drawings of animals, plants, and the ancient the buildings. They also were collecting specimens of everything, insects, birds, crocodiles, mummies, and geology, and they were putting it in crates. And when the uh, French finally surrendered, the bedraggled remnants, basically, of the French army uh, surrendered to the British, the British said, give us everything, all of your personal belongings, they belong to us. And the French general was inclined to do that. He, he had sort of fallen out with these scientists, and, and they, um, he said, sure, take it all. And so they, the British went to the scientists, and they said to the scientists, look, we'll take your amazing find, this hall of knowledge, back to London, and you can come with us. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't you rather be in London now after <laughs> you spent three years out here in the desert? And they said, absolutely not. You cannot take our things. If, if you try to take these drawings and these specimen jars, we will throw them overboard into the sea, or we will burn them, and you will be remembered as having destroyed a library of knowledge greater than the Ptolemy's library in uh, classical Alexandria. And so the British kind of stood back and took pity on them and said, okay, you can keep, keep the boxes and keep your notes, but we're taking that big stone over there, and we're taking those big, those big objects that you think you want to take back to France. <laughs> Perhaps maybe in a poetic justice kind of way, it was a Frenchman that did, in fact, decipher the Rosetta Stone. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Champollion, 20 years later, he was a boy when these men came back, and he um, heard one of them, a physicist named Fourier. Fourier, by the way, Fourier's theorem still taught in calculus. He was one of the leaders of the expedition. He gave a talk somewhere at some little school, and here was this boy sitting in the audience, fascinated. And it turned out he turned out to be a linguistic genius. And 20 years later, he was able to, using the Rosetta Stone, decipher the ancient writing and identify it really as phonetic as opposed to symbolic. And so he won the race. The British were, were really trying to decipher as well, but Napoleon won that for France, even though the stone remained in the British hands. Your, your book chronicles a number of the scientists, artists, inventors that accompanied uh, Napoleon, and you go into a lot of uh, interesting stories about them. Which, which of their tales fascinated you the most? Oh, boy. I sort of partial to Monge, the geometer. Mm. He, was a, he was a revolutionary enthusiast in his 50s, one of the older men on the expedition, at the son of a peddler. He would have never risen to the position that he did had there not been a revolution. He was a genius uh, geometer, and in his young uh, days, as a teenager, in fact, he invented a way of drawing, calculating geometric shapes on paper that we call now descriptive geometry. Descriptive geometry essentially enabled the Industrial Revolution. It allows people to um, look at shapes mathematically. But he was also this passionate revolutionary zealot and a worshiper of Napoleon. Napoleon would say, Monge loves me as, as one loves a mistress. Um, he loved Napoleon. He went with him everywhere, not just to Egypt, but uh, in Italy. And, and uh, anyway, when he got back to France, Napoleon 
bestowed on him a noble title because Napoleon, of course, became an emperor, and it's now post post revolutionary France. Titles are back in vogue, so he calls he gives Monge the title the Count of Palouse, named after Pelusium, which is the site in the desert, uh, an ancient where ancient relics were discovered. He gives him a, he gives him a title. The guy lives in a chateau with his family. We should have expected to live out his days, you know, in splendor. But Napoleon, of course, 11 years later, overthrown. The royals come back, and the first thing they do is strip the poor old geometer of his riches. And he lives, the, he spends the rest of his days in penury. Now, the title of the book, Mirage, actually has to do with, um, it's, it's metaphorical and factual. Monge was Napoleon's geometer, and on this march across the desert that Napoleon made his soldiers take, uh, as they, when they arrived in Alexandria, he marched them five days through the sea of burning sand. They started to see this strange phenomenon, water at the edge of the horizon, and the soldiers were blowing their brains out. They were unequipped. They didn't have canteens. They were in alpine wool uniforms. It was June in the Sahara Desert. And Monge keeps stopping, and of course Napoleon stops with him. And Monge keeps stopping and sketching out this diagram of, of angles and sunlight and sand and trying to figure out what this thing is geometrically that they're looking at and optically and what he determines and what he eventually discusses and describes to his Institute of Egypt, which they set up in Cairo in an old harem room, is very close to what modern optics believes that the mirage is caused by. So he is one of my favorites, but they're all, all of these guys were fascinating characters. They lived amazing lives after they got back to Paris, those who survived. We don't have time to get into them all, but they, they're all, and many of them made, made findings and discoveries that really, early modern science really made the world kind of become what it is today. Indeed, and brought the attention to Egypt that uh, had not been there before. Exactly. Uh, one of the ones that I was interested in, of course, was the artist uh, Dominique Vivant-Denon, who became the curator oh, yes. of the Louvre. Yes, we can't forget him. Denon was, was uh, fascinating. Another fascinating character, one of the older, again, one of the older participants in the civilian corps. Great wit, artist, diplomat, very sophisticated man. And he basically, you know, in his lace cuffs, carrying, you know, Plutarch's lives in his backpack, in his sketchbook, followed the army up the Nile on their first trek up the Nile and everywhere stopping and begging the soldiers to stay by him while he while he sketched he was in awe of these of these giant visions of, of the ancient culture that they would see along the Nile as they marched at night by moonlight because in the daytime it was too hot so they would come around a curve in the Nile and they would see untouched by man sand drifted up to the very tops of these columns, 50 yards in circumference, I mean, these massive objects, and he would stop and draw them. And then when he got back to Paris, he published a two-volume travelogue that became really the first bestseller of the 19th century. It preceded in, by 20 years the publication of the Great Encyclopedia, and it was kind of the popular version of the travels in, in Egypt that the French had yeah, and then he became, of course, the director of the Louvre under uh, Napoleon. And then when the royals came back, they booted him right out. As they, all of these men had sort of a great uh, ascended great heights when they returned to Paris temporarily because they were Napoleon's favorites. And then as soon as the royals came back in, 
they plummeted right down. And Danone was another one, but he'd already been wealthy, and he didn't wind up in quite the same position as the geometer. He basically spent the rest of his days writing, trying to write a book that would sort of an art history book that would cover all the art that he could collect or, or categorize going back to classical days. Uh, after all your investigation of all the scientists, artists, uh, inventors, uh, what is your impression of them as uh, maybe a group, and do you think that sort of uh, spirit still exists today in terms of scientific inquiry or exploration? My impression of them as a group is that they lived at a time. What really got me interested in this book was the time in w- at which they were living. I had done this book on James Smithson of the Smithsonian, who lived at the same time, early modern science era, science and these men are asking questions that when they answered them in the next 20 or 30 years about electricity about biology about heat about light about dreams about human nature all of these questions that they were asking and looking at in a in a way that we identify now as a sort of a modern scientific way in other words cat you know questions uh repeat experiments this period is really interesting because now we live in a time where, you know, light, computers, we, we take all this for granted, medical care. They didn't have any of that, and they were just starting to create, you know, create theories that would enable the world to look the way it does now. So I found their time fascinating, and I guess the spirit of their times, that questioning, that questioning, that's real humanistic kind of way of going about things, I think it's admirable and are there people in their in our time operating like that well of course i mean there's great sciences being practiced all over the the world i'm sure i'm not a scientist but the public kind of support for it these guys were you know they were they were heroes in their day and i don't think that's quite the kind of time that we live in now i think that we're not we're not exactly in a period of in which the sciences and scientific thought is raised to kind of the level that it was at that period. Um, of course, there have been other periods when it has been, but I think now we're more in the, we're operating in a different, less fact-based period. As you did mention, there's still some turmoil over the remains of these artifacts in Egypt's trying to get them back. How's that evolving at present? Well, I did meet Zahi Hawass, the head of antiquities in, in Egypt, who's running around the world trying to get these things back you know one day he's in atlanta and the next day he's in cairo and then the next day he's in berlin i think he's having some success because these ideas of cultural heritage have come to the fore people appreciate them more respect them more Um, but the rosetta stone not going to be back in cairo anytime soon apparently obelisks from central park uh in the met i doubt it but you know he's making efforts and he's certainly making inroads All right. Well, I certainly hope everyone will go uh, take a look at your new book. The new book is, of course, Mirage, Napoleon Scientists, and the Unveiling of Egypt. Ms. Burley, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you. And you're just listening to Ms. Nina Burley discussing Napoleon Scientists. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Welcome in just a few minutes. It's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
All right, ready to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, savant or idiot? So for the following five people, the <laughs> Grokatron 5000 would like to know, savant or idiot, and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Ms. Brill, are you ready to play the game? I am ready. All right, here we go. Person number one, savant or idiot, Donald Trump. Uh, idiot. <laughs> he, he's never shown any signs to me of being a man of wisdom or knowledge. All right. Number two is the pop star Britney Spears. Oh, dear. I'd have to say idiot. Although, boy, this is a tough one. <laughs> yes, I'd say idiot. I mean, she's medicated. She's terribly, she's, she's, she's medicated herself out of, into oblivion. And she could have been a savant, I suppose, if she popped savant, but um, she's taken too much cough medicine. <laughs> Uh, number three is uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, savant. He's a thoughtful man. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was reckless in many ways, but he was extremely prescient in many ways as well. Mm -hmm. uh, number four is Dr. Phil. Boy, I guess I'd have to say he's a savant. He's a knower. He knows how to, he knows how to keep himself in the public eye, and he certainly knows how to turn his training into popular money-making venture, so I guess a savant would. <laughs> All right, and finally, number five, it is the President of the United States. I knew you were going to put him on the list. <laughs> Has to be right. George Bush. Uh, boy, you know, I'm going to go with savant. Um, not because he knows, but because he's managed to persuade the majority of uh, the population that he is a knower. And um, I have to say, I once met his wife. I had to interview his wife, hmm. our first lady, and I was actually stunned at how intelligent she seemed. Hmm. So I have to say, I think there's more to George than meets the eye. I think a lot of people are still looking for what that is, though. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I've had this argument with many, many people. Of, you know, he's an idiot. No, he's an idiot. <laughs> I I just I just don't know. I've not I've not you know I'm, I'm looking at the same man everyone else is with the dangling arms and the the saunter the swagger. But I think there might be more to him than than we're actually getting hmm. at. Maybe bears uh, further investigation there. <laughs> I think I think there may have to be um, some investigation. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, again, your new book is Mirage, Napoleon Scientists and the Unveiling of Egypt. Uh, Ms. Burley, thank you very much for talking about the book. And, of course, stick around and play the game. Thank you. Great. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, and now it's time for this week's question of the week. And uh, here again to provide it with his very sage advice is our good friend Forrest Gump. Forrest, how are you doing? Thank you, Dr. Lee. It's a pleasure to be coming back from the South, the good old American South. Is there any greater South than the American South? I don't think so, but all American cities are great. Some of my best friends come from other American cities. Wow, you know, I, I have no best friends, so I, I can only take your word for it. <laughs> and in a lot of American cities, they got this Euclid Avenue. Yeah, why is that in so many American cities? I think everybody wants to know. Because they love Greek mathematicians. But it also turns out that instead of 13th Street, it's always Euclid Avenue. And the reason? Euclid wrote 13 books, and that's why it's called Euclid Avenue. I've only read one. Anyway, thank you very much, Forrest. You're welcome. 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Thank you.